0: The Lord helping me, this morning I wish to begin a number of sermons that will deal with the subject of Bible economics. And I trust that the Lord will use these sermons to help each one of you to remind me of our duties financially to please Him while we're here in this world, that will please our Savior number one in being good stewards for those things that He has given to us. Number two, that we'll provide a witness to this world that we will not have to be ashamed of for being negligent and ignorant in our financial affairs. And third of all, that you'll have lack of nothing, but that you'll have everything you need financially to enjoy the blessings of life that God intends for you to have. Bible economics, as I'm defining the term, is a study that we will make of God's ordained methods for achieving financial success in this world. God has a great deal to say about financial matters in the Word of God. I mean, if you were to take a concordance and look up every time the word money, the word riches, the word poverty, the word business, and so forth appear in Scripture, you'd be amazed at the hundreds of references there are and God's emphasis upon us managing Our economic resources in a way that would please him and is to our benefit. Now God says of the Word of God Himself that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now I like that word that starts with P R profit. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. There is profit from the Word of God in instruction in righteousness. Even when it comes to financial matters, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, even those verses that deal with money were inspired by God to give us His rules for the proper management of money. We read over in Acts chapter 20 that when Paul left the church at Ephesus, he told them that he had kept back nothing that would have been profitable for them. Well, now, we'll use that term in its strictest sense, and that is financial gain. Paul kept back nothing that was profitable for the Ephesians, but he preached to them the whole counsel of God. In Acts chapter 20, any minister who's trying to be faithful will preach on financial matters and use the Word of God as his basis for what he preaches. How many of you have taken a high school or college or even a graduate level course in economics? Raise your hands. I'd like to see How many have taken a course in economics? Great. Look at Proverbs chapter 11 and just let me give you one example where God himself assumes an understanding of economics. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 26. My purpose this morning and in the next few Sundays is not to deal with what I would call national economics per se, political Economics, monetary economics, although the Word of God has to say something about all those. I'm dealing primarily with personal, family, or home economics, as what it was called when you were in high school, maybe. Look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 26. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall bless him, but blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. Those of you who have had economic courses, do you remember... Your supply and demand curves. Remember your supply and demand curves. As a demand curve increases in quantity, as the quantity of a good is demanded, more and more of that is demanded, the price for that good will increase along the demand curve. As less and less of supply reaches market, the higher the price must go to find equilibrium with demand. Remember the supply and demand curves, those of you who have had economics. That's assumed in Proverbs 11:26. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him, but blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. Here's a farmer, and he has four or five silos filled with corn, and there's need for corn. And he's taken a course in economics at the local community college, and he realizes that if he withholds his corn, he reduces supply, Therefore, demand must ride up the supply curve to find an equilibrium price. Then he can sell it at a higher price and make more money. That's what Proverbs 11.26 is talking about. You know what God thinks of a man who withholds his production in order simply to make more money at the expense of those who need his corn? He condemns it. Proverbs 11.26 But the point I'm trying to make from the verse is that to understand that verse fully, you need to have a basic understanding of economics to understand Proverbs 11:26 26. That there are supply and demand curves involved in that verse. And if you can visualize in your mind how those curves work, you can see exactly what this individual is trying to do. It goes back to... We could talk about monopolies and oligarchies and some of the other things you learned about in economics which fit this verse. But I just gave you that as one out of hundreds of verses in the Word of God that assume and understanding of economics. Look now with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy six seventeen. There is an error on the part of many Christians, and I'll call it the monastery mentality, that God intends for His children in this world to be poor, not to have anything, not to enjoy anything in life, But to live the life of monks, whether they're in a monastery or not, it's what I'd call monastery mentality, that enjoying good things and having plenty, being rich while there are poor in the world who are starving, is ungodly. Well, let's look what God said to the rich in 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. You mean God had some Christians who were rich in this world? He sure did. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, don't get cocky about your riches, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us bare necessities to enjoy. Is that what the verse says? Who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Listen, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and He's created that for the benefit of His children if they'll take advantage of it. The Lord giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Don't assume the monastic mentality of thinking you need to be like the Roman Catholic monks who deprive themselves of any pleasure or enjoyment of things of the world. God gave us richly, not barely, but richly all things to enjoy. That's a principle of Bible economics. That all these things that are here in this world, this world that God created and put man in it and said, subdue it. Have dominion over it. He intends intends for us to enjoy it. Now, the most important point that I want to make here in the first part of my sermon is this. Regardless of what the rich may say, a poor man can know a lot more with his Bible. Now, I covered this very briefly last Sunday. But regardless of what the rich say and regardless of what the rich write, they are ignorant many times if you'll measure them by the Word of God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Look at Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 11. Remember, we believe that the Word of the Lord is right. Whatever the Word of the Lord says and whenever the Word of the Lord contradicts what men say the, the uh, difference or the dilemma is easily resolved. Man is a liar. God is true. It's that simple. It's not difficult to use the Bible as a final criteria and absolute source of truth. Whenever men disagree with it, they're ignorant and liars. God is true. The word of the Lord is right. Now, here's what it says in chapter 28 and verse 11 of the book of Proverbs, written by the richest man that ever lived and the wisest man to boot. King Solomon. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. Where does understanding come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. If you know God, and you know His Word, understanding comes through this Word. The Word of God gives understanding. And if you're a poor man this morning and you'll pay attention to what I'm going to be telling you from the Word of God, you can know more than the rich. They get wise in their conceits. When they make it, and they have lots of money, and they sit around and get to fantasize about how much they have, they get conceited, and they get wise in those conceits, and their wisdom is based in ignorance. And if you're a poor man that believes the Word of God, we you can find them out, and you can understand more than they do. Now, I'm not saying everything that rich men say is a lie. Many times they say things that are true. But the only way you know that they say things that are true is if they say things that you could have read for yourself in the Bible. You don't need a rich man to learn anything. You don't need to go to B. Dalton and hit the business section. You need to turn to the book of Proverbs and read it one chapter a day and you'll get the understanding you need. A poor man, through the understanding and reading of the Word of God, is able to know more than rich men. Now, here's the problem of what I'm going to be presenting to you in the next few sermons. The wisdom of financial success is simple. Here's the problem. The wisdom of financial success is too simple. It's too simple for anyone who has any degree of conceit at all about what they've accomplished or what they've seen others accomplish. The wisdom of financial success is so simple... Proud men will ignore it and despise it. It's the poor, humble man who trembles at the Word of God who will come to the Bible and believe whatever God says. It's too simple. It's too easy. See, men are always looking for something newfangled. Something new. Something novel. Something complicated and yet doesn't require much work. The problem we're going to run into is that you're going to be saying well that's just too simple listen God made it simple and a poor man who understands the word of God can figure it out without the benefits of a higher education that the rich might have look at chapter 26 and verse 16 chapter 26 and verse 16 the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason When I get done preaching to you about what the Bible has to say about finance and economics, you're going to be able to give reasons for why things are the way they are. You're going to be able to give reasons and methods and procedures for making things different than the way they are and for financial success. But you're going to run into sluggards who are wise in their own conceits who are going to ignore the fact that seven of you might be able to give them a good reason. It will be so simple your heart's will tell you it can't be true. Things don't work that way. It takes more comp- a more complicated means than what you've described. God has already told us that's going to happen and He's told us to trust His Word. You know, I love the words of God in 1 Corinthians 14:38, And listen to these words. Him that, is, him that is ignorant, let him be ignorant still. If someone wants to be ignorant and despise what God has said, do you know what God says about him? Let him remain ignorant. 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-eight. Success must be measured by what God said. The word of the Lord is right. We will go by what God said. We will not go by experience or the testimony of those who are rich except where they agree with what the word of God already said. Therefore, you hardly need them at all. Here's the reason for that, and I'm going to be touching on it in depth later. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. God doesn't like men who despise what He has offered them in the way of wisdom. If God offers men something for them to learn, and they reject that opportunity to learn the truth, God has a way of dealing with them. He turns them over to utter darkness and ignorance. Look at this in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 30. Here are some men who didn't like what God had to say. It says of them, They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, as a result of what they did with what God offered them, therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. This principle is extremely important. I'm going to be teaching you some things that are so simple, you're going to say they can't be true. Because I've read some complicated books that make it more difficult than that. And these are books written by rich men. These are books written by men who have great prosperity. They're millionaires. They know what they're talking about. And what are most books that sell at B. Dalton based on? How I Made My First Million. How I made my first 10 million. How you can make your first 10 million. It measures thing by things by riches. What does God say? God has said He will give riches many times to foolish men who despise His wisdom, in order to take the rest of you who don't want to submit to the word of God. The prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Destroy who. Those people who do not appreciate what God has said but think there must be something else. God has allowed men of this world to follow a course of action contrary to His Word and yet it be extremely successful. Why has He done that? So that any one of you who want an excuse to reject the Word of God will have one. You'll have some rich men you can go to the library or go to B. Dalton and pull a book off the shelf, and you'll have a rich man who said to do it differently than what God said. God has guaranteed that. He said he said he would do it right here in Proverbs one thirty two. That's very comforting. See, if you didn't know that principle, what would you do about all the rich men in America today who have followed courses of action contrary to what the Bible says? You'd have a dilemma. God must be a liar. Because they, they're rich and they didn't do what God said to be rich. God has given them prosperity as a judgment. And the Word of God told us that in advance. Success will be measured by what God said. We couldn't care less whether a man is rich or not unless he tells you that the methods for his success are based on the Word of God. Because the minute you start measuring methods by success, you depart from Scripture. We will go simply by what the Word of God has to say. It is pitiful and sad that an anti-Christian cult like Mormonism puts Christians to shame financially. The Mormons have their act together financially. You ought to study what the Mormons require of their families. There's not a Mormon family, and I'm speaking in generalities, who doesn't have one year of income set aside in liquid form for them to live on and food, clothing, and other necessities for one year in their houses. Every Mormon family. It's a requirement of stewardship to be a good Mormon. Mormons have some good principles down as far as savings. And let me tell you, they give to the church first. They give to the Lord first. They don't emphasize their careers first. Remember, I worked at a large bank where the chairman was a Mormon and we had Mormons working throughout the bank because Mormons stick together like Christians ought to, even though they're anti-Christians. All those young men that I grew up with in that bank had to spend the first two years out of high school in mission work at their own expense. Every young Mormon man, at his own expense lives two years away from home and works five days a week in missionary work. You've seen them in the city. You see them pedaling down the street on bikes, two at a time, always two together because they're trying to keep Luke 10, pedaling down the street and they'll always have a white shirt, navy blue pants, navy blue tie, and closely cropped hair. Very polite, very kind, very well organized, and very diligent. So that when we met them in the bank, they were always two years behind in their career path than the rest of us. They put what they considered the Lord first and their church first at their own expense. And yet, as soon as they were working, they made savings a priority, which I will be emphasizing before I get through. It is a shame that an anti-Christian cult like the Mormons put most Christians to shame. It's a pity. It's sad. Turn back with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. There are many ministers, many, many ministers, who would be almost embarrassed to hear that a preacher was going to spend several sermons dealing with money and finances. Why they think that's such a low and despicable subject. It shouldn't be brought into the congregation where all we ought to talk about is blood, Jesus Christ, heaven, immortal glory, and grace. Oh, there are. There are a lot who would criticize me for what I'm going to do in the next few sermons. Let me remind you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of the importance that Paul placed on your economic behavior, your finances. Now, I'm going to read some verses that we read last Sunday, but I'm going to read these verses because I don't want you ever to forget them. And if someone criticizes the importance you place on managing your financial affairs, I want you to remember where that emphasis came from. It came from the Gentile apostle, the the apostle to the Gentiles, St. Paul. Verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Paul here says that we commanded you some things on how you should walk and please God. And it is my desire for you, Paul said, that you would abound in those things more and more. That you would increase in the way that you walk according to this chapter. Now look at what he describes in this chapter. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And now he lists them. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What I am dealing with is true Bible sanctification. Sanctification is not avoiding dance halls. Sanctification is not avoiding a bottle of beer. Sanctification is not avoiding a deck of playing cards. Sanctification is not going around and measuring everyone's hair with a ruler. Paul will tell you what sanctification is. Sanctification is abstaining from fornication, number one. Sexual sins. You're to keep your own body under control, verse 4. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Number one, avoiding fornication. Number two, verse 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Your business dealings with every brother ought to be perfectly honest and you ought to avoid defrauding any brother. That's Sanctification point two. Verse nine But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Third step in sanctification in the will of God for each one of his children to love one another. Abstain from fornication, don't defraud, and love one another. And now here's where the two verses I love verses eleven and twelve. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. See, these are the commandments that make up the basis for sanctification. Verse 12, that, here's the end result, ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. What God has required of you financially, Paul said you are to study, to learn how to work with your own hands, manage your own business in order to be able to have those things so that you can keep God's financial responsibilities and that is sanctification. Abstaining from fornication, not defrauding your brother, loving one another, and studying to learn how to manage your economic affairs. Did you know this is the only use of the word study in the New Testament for God's children at large? There's not a verse in the Bible that a man can raise where you're told to study the Bible. Now that's amazing. and you know uh, there's preachers that are rolling over in their graves when I say that. There's not a verse in the Bible that tells the average church member to study his Bible. Look it up. God's ministers are told to study their Bible, Second 2 Timothy 2:15. 2, Here's what you're told to study, to learn to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands, So that financially you'll be well enough off to keep everything God's required of you financially. I wish ministers would put the emphasis where the emphasis belongs. Let ministers do the work of studying the Bible instead of this monastic mentality. How many Christians get the idea that for to be a good Christian and to sit at home in all their spare time and read the Bible? That's what being a good Christian is. A good Christian, according to this, is studying to learn how to get ahead financially. So that you can keep God's financial requirements. And let the minister worry about studying his Bible and he'll preach it to you on the Lord's Day. Now that's the way that's where the Bible puts the priorities. Now this isn't the only place Paul spoke of it. Look at Romans chapter twelve. Romans chapter twelve and verse eleven. I hope you got the emphasis from First Thessalonians chapter four, though. To be holy, to be sanctified to do the will of God this is the will of God manage your financial affairs wisely look what paul said in romans 12:11 not slothful in business you mean paul you were concerned about the roman christians and their business affairs he sure was he said not slothful in business fervent in spirit serving the lord now how does someone who's in business serve the lord Does that mean they resign and become a missionary? Or does that mean they buckle down and they perform, if they're an employee, they perform as a servant. If they're an employer, they perform as a master and they work as hard and as diligently and as enthusiastically as they can. Is that serving the Lord? That's how you serve the Lord. That is how you serve the Lord. By doing your job well not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. It doesn't say fervent in the spirit. It says fervent in spirit. It condemns slothfulness and it requires enthusiasm for what you do in serving the Lord and what God has called you to do to serve the Lord is to be the best employee or the best employer that you possibly can be and to study at being the best employee and the best employer. That's what Romans twelve eleven is talking about. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. You say, hurry up and get to the rules of financial success. I want to be rich. Just wait. We're going to build a foundation. It may take some time. I want you to see the Bible emphasis. The first time you talk to most Christians about the emphasis you have in your life and in your church about financial matters, they'll say you're a carnal church. Carnal Church, all you people do is talk about money. Is that all we talk about? It's been two years, the first time I've preached in economics, since I've been your pastor. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. God wants you to give a, get ahead. God wants you to have a nice bank account. And I'm not speaking like Reverend Ike. God wants you to have a nice bank account so that you can give to him that needeth. And I'll be dealing with those people who have needs. You're going to have family members who have needs. You're responsible for them. You're going to have a pastor who has needs. You're responsible for him. You're going to have poor brethren in the church who are going to have needs. You're responsible for them. And you need to get ahead so that you have a nice-sized bank account so that you can write checks against it and pay for needs. Now, if you're, bare, if you're barely living from check to check, as one man said, there's too much month left at the end of the money. You know, we ought to be striving for some money left at the end of the month, but most of you have more month left at the end of the money, right? You're, to not, you're not to be living that way. You're to have some money left to be able to give to him that needeth. Paul said that. Paul's our pattern, isn't he? Wasn't Paul the most religious, sincere man that ever walked this earth outside of Jesus Christ that we know of? Look at his emphasis on business and having something laid in store to give to them that need. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. Titus chapter 3. Here Paul lays the responsibility out to another minister. Titus, don't you forget, and this is what he closes out with, don't you forget to do this either. In your ministry. Titus 3.14 And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. That they be not unfruitful. You say, well, that all that verse is talking about is good works like washing the saints' feet and being in church every Sunday. Oh, no, it's not. It's ours learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. He's talking about carnal matters. That you're to learn. Learn maintain good works. And the works are being a good employee and a good employer and you're to learn those. Notice the emphasis on studying and learning the things that I'm going to be teaching you. You know that the book of Proverbs, the book written by King Solomon, is filled with practical advice on managing your money, on working hard, on savings, on minimizing your expenses, and so forth. You know that. But have you ever thought about the emphasis Jesus Christ himself placed in financial matters? Have you ever read the parables of Christ and thought about how many of Christ's parables dealt with money matters? Just let me run through a list. More than half of Christ's parables had to do with money. How about the parable of the talents? Where he told the man that he should have taken his talent and put it in a bank where it could have earned some interest. How about the parable of the laborers? The laborers he hired. How about the parable of the rich fool? How about the unjust steward or treasurer? How about the lost coin? How about the prodigal son who unwisely spent his father's inheritance? How about the rich man and Lazarus? How about the parable of the hid treasure? How about the parable of the householder? How about the parable of the pearl of great price? How about the parable of the debtors? Why did Jesus Christ put so much emphasis on financial matters? Easy. Easy you will spend more of your time here on earth pursuing financial matters than any other single thing you'll do. You spend more time, more energy in pursuing financial things than anything else. Did you know that 60 to 70% of all family problems can be boiled down or indirectly related to financial matters? Look at Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16. I'm dealing with some points right now to show the importance of what we're covering and why it is so important for us to study Bible economics. Jesus Christ emphasized it in parables. Solomon emphasized it in the book given for our wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote about it. Sixty to seventy percent of problems in families are financially related. The man's not making enough or the man's trying to make too much. The point I want to get from Luke chapter 16 is I can judge your character by how successful you are financially. And Jesus Christ taught that, beginning at verse 10. Luke 16:10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? These three verses tell me plainly how to measure your character. And that's based on your faithfulness in money matters. If you have been unfaithful in money matters and you have nothing to show for yourself but a bunch of debts, I don't need to ask questions. I don't need to look further about your character. If I know that there are no drastic catastrophic acts of God in your life. You've already told me that you're an unfaithful man. And you've told God that you're unfaithful. Because he that is faithful in least will be faithful in much. And if you haven't been faithful in what another man's committed to your charge, no wonder you don't have anything of your own. You're not going to get it. God's not going to give you the true riches until you are faithful with that which is another man's. When you're an employee of someone else and you serve well in taking care of his things. Bible economics is important because it measures your character, and the world knows that. The world knows that. That's why Paul said, study to do your own business that we may provide things honest toward them that are without. That's why Paul told Titus that we must learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. That the world can see that so that we be not unfruitful You're unfruitful if you haven't managed your financial affairs. Now look at verses 8 and 9 of this same chapter. Luke chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. Verses 1 through 7 have a parable of a certain rich man and his steward, his treasurer. I'm not going to get into the parable at this point. I just want to read verses 8 and 9. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. And here are the words I want you to hide in your heart and to let haunt you. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What does Jesus say? That we ought to just admit that, acknowledge it, and go on, and let the children of this world be wiser in financial matters than ourselves? No, look at verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And then he goes on to describe if you've been faithful in the mammon of unrighteousness, God will commit to your trust the true riches. But if you haven't been faithful in making friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, God will not commit to your trust The true riches. The children of this world can teach us some valuable lessons if we will emulate them in certain financial matters where they agree with the Word of God. We are to make to ourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness so that we can find a habitation with them and use this world while we are here, especially ministers. Ministers better know how to use this world because when they fail and are in need of supporting themselves, they' better be able to know how to do it. Luke 16:9: You know, it's good to be thankful that we are not as some. But it's also good to regret that we are not as others. I have told you that my family has subscribed for a number of years to National Geographic. National Geographic is a, ge- is a graphic way to portray to your children how poor many children have it in this world in order for them to be more thankful for what they have. That's good, isn't it? That's good for our children to be thankful for three meals a day, plus four or five snacks. It's good to be thankful. It's good to take your children in the car sometimes and drive to derelict parts of town, which we have done before, to show them what other children don't have so that they can be thankful for what they do have. Because what you have is from the hand of God and you ought to be thankful for it. That's good. That's good. But do you expose your children to the better parts of town than where you live? So that they can learn and study to see how men can be successful financially? Do you subscribe to Forbes or some other magazine that has short, interesting articles? for your children to be exposed to a better side than you have so that they can learn from the children of this world. You say we shouldn't do that. We should be content with what we have. Then why did Paul say study and learn to get ahead farther? We will come to the balance of contentment and striving for success financially and there is a balance, obviously. I was raised in what I will call an upper-low-class area of Michigan, entirely blue-collar, where people worked in the auto factories around Detroit, where if they got ahead $100, they felt that justified them buying a $3,000 snowmobile. If they got ahead another $100, that justified buying a $10,000 four-wheel drive pickup. If they got ahead another $100, they had to have a $4,000 boat to blast around on the many, many lakes of Michigan. And they lived in abject poverty. You wouldn't believe Michigan has one of the highest per capita incomes of any state in the Union. Quite different from the state of South Carolina. We're second from the bottom. And that's going to become important in just a minute. I grew up in that neighborhood. I went to school with those kids. I didn't know anything better. I thought that's all there was to life until I started traveling for Michigan National and what a rude awakening I was in for. To have to mingle on Broadway in New York City with Merrill Lynch and Solomon Brothers. What a difference. What a shock I was in for. And sometime I may tell you just what a shock it was to my system to learn how to have to change in dress and speech and behavior and learning how to eat without my fingers. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the point I want to make is this. We spend time trying to create a thankful attitude in the part of our children, don't we? Because they are better than those that are poorer. Now, you can always find someone poorer, right, to make yourself feel good. That's a rut. That's a rut people get into, is measuring themselves among themselves by being partial. Partial. If you measure yourselves by someone who's poorer than you, you're always going to feel good about your financial situation. Well, why don't you get in your car and drive through the east side of Greenville for a couple of hours, drive through Sugar Creek, drive down Roper Mountain Road, and just view those 5,000 square foot houses and wonder where it came from so that you realize you haven't achieved God's best necessarily yet just because you're better... And some other parts of town. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are to learn from the children of this world. We need to expose our children to both, or your children will not know that there's something better, and they will not be striving for that that is better. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know how a professional man was to live. There weren't any professionals in our community. A man who had a career and who wasn't living from paycheck to paycheck is what I mean by a professional. I mean, those people who worked at the auto companies and would get laid off and never knew when they were going to get laid off. But let me tell you, when the money was rolling in, and it does roll in at $25 an hour, for somebody who never made it past the sixth grade, that's good earnings. But all they would do is buy things, and there they'd be laid off with a couple rusted out snowmobiles sitting in the yard and a rusted out boat trying to sell their four-wheel drive pickup. Now, let me come back to South Carolina. Second poorest state in the Union. Does God expect His saints to live that way? Or should you look and get some exposure by some way or another of something that is better than what the average South Carolinian has? And as you can tell, I'm not bragging about what Michigan did with a higher per capita income. See, if you don't do that, if you don't ever look at the children of, uh, children of this world, you'll be content with mediocrity. You'll be content to be mediocre. God has not called us to be mediocre. God has called us to be diligent in business. But if you have never been exposed to what diligence in, diligence in business will bring you, How are you going to know how to measure yourself? Just getting by is not God's idea of financial success. But yet, how many Christians assume that? Well, I have enough bread in the cupboards to eat today. And the Lord said to pray for my daily bread. And they're content with that. Just getting by is not God's method for financial success at all. You're to have something laid up for a number of other duties He has for you. You are to be rich Men, in a degree, wait till I get to the object, what you are to have financially. And by rich, I don't mean we have to all set personal goals to be multimillionaires before we're 50 years old. But we do have to have some financial targets. And it's not just getting by. And it's not just having food, clothing, and shelter. It's more than that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.31 that it is our privilege while we're here to use this world as long as we don't abuse it. We're not to abuse this world by making it the most important thing, but while we're here, we are to learn how to use it. That's learning to be friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. Let me move to another point. Christians often end up in a financial ditch. They take the monastic mentality or they end up trying to match King Solomon. Right? Christians are known for their extremism. Either they try to be a monk and live without anything and say that this is true humility. Living in a rundown house, driving a rundown car, and wearing rundown clothes, I'm humble. I'm a good Christian. I'm putting first things first. I read my Bible five hours a day. Where did God tell you to do that? That's one extreme. The other extreme is the man who feels he's got to work 20 hours a day to try to emulate King Solomon. And be a multimillionaire. millionaire And he sleeps during church because he's worked 20 hours a day, six days a week. And when he's here, his eyes are closed in about five minutes. I've never seen those types. Oh, yes, I have. Have I ever been that type? I have had my problems. I know what that's about too. That extreme. The Lord wants us to walk between those two extremes. The Lord has given us Richly, all things to enjoy. There's not a thing wrong with enjoying those things. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 4 with me. I want to give you an example. This is an example of a Bible rule for success being fulfilled in a Bible example. Proverbs 22 and verse 4. We're not to the rules yet, but I just want to show you something. What I want to do is prove that God doesn't have anything against those people who are rich. What I want to prove is that God sometimes gives riches. What I want to prove is that God wants you to be rich. Proverbs twenty two and verse four, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Three things God's promised riches, honor, and life. Now come to first Chronicles twenty nine, twenty eight. First Chronicles chapter twenty-nine and verse twenty-eight. This is speaking of David. Just as he dies, in giving a commentary upon his life, First Chronicles 29, 28, and he, that is David, died in a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon his son reigned in his stead. What did David have when he died? What did David have during his life? Length of days, riches, and honor. Three things. What did God say you would have if by humility you feared the Lord, in Proverbs 22, 4. Long life, riches, and honor. Now, David had all that when he died, because David was a man that feared God, and God gave him riches. What did David start with? An MBA from Harvard? No. How to be a good shepherd from your local adult education class. Found in the field watching sheep. How did he end up? Long life. Riches and honor. See, God gives riches. He took a man from the sheepfold and David was, dude, David remembered that all of his life and exalted him. God doesn't have a thing wrong with the rich in this world. Why, well, you look at the man Job, the richest man in the east. Job chapter 1. You look at Abraham. Abraham had so many possessions he couldn't live with anyone. Couldn't live with his nephew. Couldn't live with the king of Gerar. He had to live by himself Because his possessions were so great, he couldn't have anyone close by. You know, this poor man needed his own country. Because he had so much. And time would fail to tell of Solomon and of the other kings that God exalted and gave great riches to. But don't forget that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul speaking to New Testament Christians, and you'd be amazed that some will say, well, the New Testament's different and God doesn't call any rich people in the New Testament. Charge them that are rich in this world. God does have His rich in New Testament churches. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10. Why is it important to study money? Listen to what the wise man had to say about it. In Ecclesiastes 10.19, a feast is made for laughter. A feast will give you some laughter. Wine maketh merry. You drink some wine, it'll make you merry. But money answereth all things. You say, well, that's not true. Solomon, didn't, Solomon shouldn't have said that. Money answereth all things, and yes, it does. Naturally speaking, if you've got enough money, you're going to have fewer problems. You say, well, God's our deliverance from problems. God has called you to have enough so that you don't lack. 1 Thessalonians 4.12 So that you can have to give to Him that needeth. So that you won't be unfruitful in necessary things, Titus 3.14, money does answer all things, and how well you all know it, if you'd admit it. Naturally speaking, Bob, if you could afford a new car, would it answer all things? Poor Bob. All of you know about it. That's why I can mention him by name. General Motors making those diesel engines didn't do the greatest job in the world, and poor Bob is suffering with one of those diesel engines. Money answereth all things. If Bob could go down and write a check for a new car, it would answer a great deal in his life right now. Solomon knew that. It's important for us to be ahead financially. Solomon knew that it answered things naturally speaking. Our goal in preaching these sermons is to please God in our stewardship and enjoy life the way God intended. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. God gave them. This world is the Lord's. The basis for studying Bible economics is the fact that God created this world and put man in it to subdue it and to use it for our enjoyment. But let me make a point very clear in the beginning. The basis of Bible economics. All men are not created equal. You say, I thought the Bible said that. No, our founding fathers had a dream one night and they wrote that. All men are not created equal. All men are created unequal. There are no two men on the face of this planet created equal. You find me two men that are created equal. They're all very unequal. Difference in height, remember? I told you I've always wanted to be six foot two. I'm only five foot ten. I was created unequal. I could say God discriminated against me. I'm happy now at five ten. I wasn't when I was a teenager, always complaining. Why was I such a runt? All of us are created unequal. Looks, singing ability. We mentioned that earlier this morning. Is that all equal in here? Height, bone structure, intelligence, aptitude. We're all very, very different. There have never been two men alike on the face of this Earth. And who makes the differences? God does. And that is very important to remember. Look at First Corinthians chapter four with me. First Corinthians four. First Corinthians four, God isn't asking you to be more successful than everyone else. God is calling on you to be as successful as you can be with what He's given you. First Corinthians four seven says this. For who maketh thee to differ from another? See, God says there's differences. And who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Do you like to sit at home and tell yourself what a smart boy you are? What a smart man you are. Do you do that? What do you have that you didn't receive? Any degree of intelligence you have above an imbecile is what God's given you and you be thankful for it and look to its source. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? There is a qualification to everything I'm going to teach. Not everyone is going to achieve the same level of financial success. Why? Because God gave different abilities. And we need to keep that in mind so that those who achieve more than the rest of the congregation... Do not sit around in glory in what they did and no one else did it as hard as I did. God does make differences. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And those of you who don't achieve as much as others, you just make sure before God you're achieving as much as you could based on what God has given you. God will require from you according to your ability, not according to someone else's ability. Look at Matthew 25 with me. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, depicts this principle so very clearly. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. See, an economic parable. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. What can we learn so far? Does God give equal ability? No. Does God give equal opportunity? Not necessarily. No. To one, He gave five talents. And talents was a, was a unit of money in those days. To one, He gave five dollars. To another, He gave two dollars. To another, He gave one dollar. Based on ability. Abilities were different And the amount given to those three individuals was different. Keep that in mind to support the point that I'm trying to make. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same. He became a bond trader. Thank God for bond trading in Scripture. And made them other five talents, and I jest, with the Word of God. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one, here's this monastery mentality, This man that received one talent, he said, I'm going to be a humble Christian instead of a successful Christian. I'm going to go bury my talent. I won't lose what God gave me, but I won't multiply it either. Verse 18, He that had received one went and digged it in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. How many of you would like to be reckoned with right now for your financial uh, affairs? But he that had received... Verse 20... And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Remember what we read in Luke 16? He that is faithful in least is faithful in much. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Is there any difference in the commendation that the second servant received compared to the, what the first servant received? None. No difference in commendation whatsoever because God measures by ability. Some of you, God and I, will hold responsible for more than what God and I will hold responsible for others in this congregation of achieving financially. Remember, God will be measuring you by the abilities He's given you. And the only way that you'll receive well done, good and faithful servant is that if you come back with five, if God gave you five. you follow what I'm saying? if you come back with four when God gave you five and someone else comes back with two when God gave them two, are you better than they? Have you been more faithful than they? Can you follow that? If God gave you five and you only gained four, but God gave someone else two and He gained two, have you been faithful? Relatively speaking? No. Because God expects five from you if He gave you five. He'll commend the man who gained two from two. But what about this one poor individual? This one poor, ignorant, humble Christian who decided he didn't want to be successful because it was carnal? So he hid his talent. Verse 24, this, Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. You show me a Christian who says he's being humble by not being successful, I'll show you a person who's a lazy, timid man. See, I knew that thou weren't a hard man. Well, the Lord went on and said, if you knew that I was a hard man, why didn't you give me some interest on what I gave you? Because he was intimidated by the challenge. Ever met people like that? There's a lion in the streets. I'll be slain. Intimidated by the challenge, of, the challenge of trying to be successful financially. It so intimidates some people to try to go out and be successful financially that they'll come up with any type of excuse to avoid it. God's called you to do it. His Lord answered in verse 26 and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. That's why I called him lazy. It's just an excuse for laziness. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury or interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. What happens if you have three Christians? One's been given great ability and aptitude for success in this world. One's been given medium ability and aptitude, two talents. And one's been given poor, not too much ability. But he was given a talent. What happens when they come back with gaining five, gaining two, and not gaining at all? God takes the man that now has ten talents and makes him richer. God takes the man that has four talents and makes him richer. God takes the man that has one talent and takes it away from him and makes him poorer. You say, that sounds terrible. That sounds like the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Precisely. That is the way God works in this world. You say, well, I don't like that because I'm a modern socialist. And I believe that everyone ought to be equal and that we ought to give all our wealth to Africa, South America, and Asia. That's not the way God planned it. God planned for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer if their poverty... And their riches are based on what they have done. You say, that's hard. That's harsh. That's a tough line. That's a God of judgment. Praise His holy name. You want to be lazy and hide the ability and opportunities God's given you in the ground? I hope He brings you to abject poverty and famine. And has He done that? Are there continents in this world that have never used anything that God gave them that are as rich or richer in natural resources than the North American continent? And yet are in abject poverty? You bet there are. Why? Because they didn't use what God gave them. And where's it given to? Who takes advantage now of those continents? The North American continent. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. God requires from each man according to the ability that God has given him. Look at Psalm 75. Promotion, my friends, is not simply based on your ability. Psalm 75. You say, well, I never, I just haven't got promoted as fast as this other brother. Am I less faithful? Not necessarily. Guess where promotion comes from? Psalm chapter 75 verse 4. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Don't get cocky about your promotions. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. Where does it come from? It comes from the north. And who lives in the north? I like that. That just hit me as an aside. I don't usually run rabbits. Where does God live? In the sides of the north. Verse 7. And you know I I love it here in South Carolina. Have I been back in two years? Do I have any plans on going back? Psalm 75 and verse 7. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Here's where you need to be wise and think. God requires of you the utmost of your ability. Here's where we've got to steer away from fatalism. God requires of you to use the abilities He's given you. He gives talents, doesn't He? And it's your responsibility to multiply them. But at the same time, in the final analysis, promotion is from the Lord. You will not get ahead without God's blessing. And it's important to remember that. That's why Paul would say, I labored more abundantly than they all, but I labored by the grace of God that was with me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 When you labor more abundantly than they all, and if you're promoted because of that, and Paul was, he was promoted to the chiefest of the apostles. If you do that, you just remember the labor that you exerted and the abilities that you applied were abilities that God gave And the opportunities that you took advantage of were opportunities that God gave. You see the balance you've got to keep? In perspective. Never emphasizing God too much or we all become fatalists. I'm going to sit around the lazy boy chair and pray for God to make me successful financially. God won't do it. Then the other extreme is speaking cockily here, lifting up your voice on high and not acknowledging the role that God has played in giving you promotion. Though the Lord gives ability... We need to perform with our might. Look at Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes 9. There's a lot of luck in this world. You say that's not scriptural. That's ungodly to talk about luck. You haven't read your Bibles. There's a lot of luck when it comes to money matters. I mean, when Jed Clampett pulled up that shotgun with buckshot and pulled the trigger and oil bubble out of his backyard and bug tussle. Remember that? That was luck. That was luck. You say... You're being sacrilegious with the Word of God. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verses 11 and 12. Solomon said, now look at verse 10. The context is beautiful here. Look at verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. I mean, if God's called you to be a bond trader, you be the best bond trader you can be. But then look what it says in the next two verses. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to men of understanding. Now Solomon, I thought you told us in Proverbs that riches were to men of understanding. He said, I returned and I saw that that's not always true nor yet favor to men of skill but time and chance Happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. You know in your life, every one of you, and I certainly know in my life, that God brought opportunity by as if it fell straight from heaven. That I couldn't have dreamed up what I fell into because I wasn't even wise enough to know that such opportunity could exist. I could be very specific, but God brought very definite opportunities into my life at Michigan National. Time and chance happens to all men. And don't you always accuse someone who isn't successful that they're slothful or timid. Now, you can do it most of the time, and you can certainly do it if you have evidence of it. But time and chance happens to all men. See the role luck plays and I'm using luck with quotation marks around it. We don't take life on with our fingers crossed. We take life on trusting in the Lord for opportunity and that if he will give us opportunity, we will exploit it to its fullest. God gives ability to know how to produce efficiently. You know, I've read to you Isaiah chapter 28 before verses 23 through 29. I've read it to you before and I'll read it to you again this evening. Let me wrap up what I've covered this morning. My clock says I have gone long enough. What I have tried to cover this morning is the introduction to Bible economics and showing its importance. What it is, that it's important for you to get ahead financially and to be wise in your financial affairs. It's what God includes as part of your sanctification and His will and command for you in this world. We are to learn from the rich of this world insofar as they put into practice Bible principles. And we're to learn to do the same things. But we're to remember this, that God hasn't created all men equal and that God will hold each one of you responsible for the ability He has given you. Not the ability you tell yourself you have, but the ability He's given you. And most of you tell yourself you have less ability than God's given. That is the nature of the human species. They're lazy So they convince themselves they're not capable. Like the man with the one talent, I'm not capable of going out and taking the challenge of trying to double this. I might fail. Therefore, I won't do anything with it. It's like the man who will never go to the plate because he's afraid of striking out. But if you're afraid to strike out the plate, the home plate of life once in a while, how in the world are you ever going to get a hit or hit a home run? But God hasn't created all men equal. He will hold you responsible for the ability He has given you. And don't ever forget time and chance. Well, how can I get time and chance on my side? You live faithfully and get on your knees and beg God. I have begged God in hundreds and hundreds of times for Him to allow me opportunities when I was working in the secular world. And my promise was to Him that if He would give me opportunities, I would exploit it I would show that a child of God doesn't have to be a lazy, humble Christian, but that I would take advantage of his opportunities. He'll provide them, just as David prayed. You you lay yourself on the line also. Just don't beg God to put a Cadillac in your driveway like Reverend Ike wants you to do. You pray for God to give you a job where you can earn a Cadillac. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.